This is an ABC podcast. On ABC RN, hi, I'm Kylie Morris. Thanks for joining me for Between the Lines. More than 80,000 people are under evacuation orders tonight as the flood crisis worsens. The severe weather that lashed Sydney is now impacting regional communities all the way up to the mid-north coast. Some residents say this is the worst flooding they've ever seen. This rescue at Chitaway Bay is one of more than 50 carried out across the central coast since the flooding began. My daughter lives on the corner there and her place is completely under. They had to come here because there's nothing left. Nothing. It's amazing, just the Wyong River going really fast and just, yeah, just never seen so much water around. (laughs) No power, no water, and we can't get out. We're uh, surrounded on all sides by by the brook having broken its banks, so um, not one of the greatest days. We've had had, uh, bushfires and COVID. Now this, yeah, not good. The thought of people in town losing their livelihoods is heartbreak. Just heartbreak. Our house is the first to go under every time. Um, This is our third flood this year. And it's taking a toll. There's no power or reception, making the job for SES crews all the more difficult. Without power, we've got no toilet, we've got no running water. We don't have anything, so we get all the help we can get. And we really appreciate the police and everyone else with their efforts. The Hawkesbury is still rising and with it, the financial toll. It's going to be a hell of a lot of damage. I mean, all my floorboards are gone and all that. I'm not insured. I can't get insurance. So, yeah, we'll have to see what we're going to do. It happened in 80, 1986 and 88, then it didn't happen for 28 years. And so it was 2016 and 2020, and now it's happened four times this year. But the speed of this week's flooding has still managed to surprise locals. Not even 24 hours we went under so quick. And it usually takes a week of constant, constant, constant rain and we still don't flood. Linda Thomas says at one point the water came up to her chest. Chest high. Chest high in my driveway. And it was pretty cold. It seems there's no escaping what is our new climate reality. Communities this time in New South Wales are again dealing with what is their fourth major flooding event in that state in just 18 months. Many of the same affected areas also battled through the country's worst bushfire season in 2019 and 2020. Our next guest believes Australia is ill-prepared for these back-to-back extreme weather events. Greg Mullins is a former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales. He's a Climate Council member as well as founder of the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action. Thanks for joining us on BTL, Greg. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thank you. Listen, you suggest that Australia has effectively lost a critical decade of preparation under the former government by failing to take advice from scientists, from climate experts about what we face. What have they missed? Look, unfortunately, that the former government wound back a lot of capabilities in climate change research. So they shut down programs such as the Climate Commission. Um, They gutted the ability of the CSIRO to do climate research. And we've just found out today that Treasury, National Treasury, has done no climate modelling for a a decade. And so they're restarting that. So um, 
And if you don't know what's coming down the road towards you, you can't prepare for it. And that's what we've lost. We haven't prepared for these out-of-scale disasters. The scientists warned us, knew they were coming, but we had a government that just wouldn't listen. But look, that's in the past. We now have a government that does understand it and is listening, but we have to put the foot on the accelerator pedal because of that lost time. I guess even as you, you know, as you describe so eloquently the way that we're still in the dark, or we're now in the dark effectively about what's coming toward us, we know that emissions at the same time are climbing alarmingly. Uh, we know that new gas and coal developments are still being approved. So even though our certainty about climate might be lacking, we're pretty clear on, on the way things are moving in the other direction. Well, absolutely. And recently, the Secretary General of the United Nations said that the pledges that governments have made around the world to, towards net zero, oh, well, reducing emissions by 2030, um, we're actually going to see at least a 14% increase in emissions. So that target of net zero by 2050 is getting further and further away. And look, frankly, Australia's one of the recalcitrants. We were way down the list of nations of um, the sorts of pledges we're making for emissions reduction. Our government now has upped that significantly, but we need to move faster and really increase that target. And this this is about survival. You know, just ask the people around Sydney, New South Wales, who are suffering the fourth flood, as you said, in two years or 18 months, uh, the people who are impacted by the worst fires ever experienced and the longest fire season ever experienced. And they know that this is about survival, not to mention the natural environment and the ecosystems that are being destroyed. In your many years, Greg, working in disaster management and recovery, you must have had, I know you have, because we've talked about it before, emotional and personal connections with those people who are affected and, and also, of course, those people who you're fighting fires alongside. What would you like to say to those people in New South Wales who are so deeply affected currently by this flooding crisis? Look, unfortunately, I know that words don't help at a time like this, but I know everybody's hearts go out to them. And, you know, thankfully we've had a Prime Minister who actually showed up this time um, and went out there to listen to people, listen to their experiences, and he was very forthright in saying, here's what's causing it and here's the sort of action we need to take. So that's great. But they're just going to need so much support into the future. And I look back, the, the long tail work is recovery. So getting people back into homes, um, making sure that their businesses are rebuilt, that they can get jobs, that takes a very long time and it's very detailed work. So we have people after the bushfires in 2019 on the south coast of New South Wales, still not in proper homes. So they're going to need a lot of support, um, not let the focus go off helping them get, get back on their feet. And, and this, <laughs> we were warned by the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements that this it was our new reality. We would have consecutive compounding disasters and a bit like getting knocked over in the surf. Um, you get knocked over by one wave, you stand up, another one hits you, you stand up, another one hits you. This is what disasters are like, and it's not just in Australia now, it's around the world. So we, we really do need to change how we prepare for disasters. We're good at responding, 
but the preparation and the recovery, they're the two factors we haven't done enough in. Greg, you mentioned the Royal Commission. Of course, there are, I think, 80 recommendations of the Royal Commission into national natural disaster arrangements that need uh, attention that haven't been addressed or haven't been implemented by either the New South Wales or previous federal government. What should happen to those recommendations now? Well, look, firstly, the federal government needs to set up a secretariat, uh, just as they did for the Banking Royal Commission. So they didn't run and hide with the Banking Royal Commission and say, oh, it's not our responsibility, it's someone else's. So now that we have a national government that is listening and is looking at this area, uh, there need to be resources assigned to track every recommendation and to chase up those agencies and governments and others that are responsible for implementing them, not just saying, look, it's not our problem, uh, because former government, 15 recommendations, it's all they worked on and just said, look, wiped their hands of the rest. But there's fundamental issues in there that will help us prepare for our worsening future of disasters. As it warms, the more it warms, the worse the disasters become. The the atmosphere, for every one degree of warming, the atmosphere holds 7% more water, and that means more violent downpours. And we saw, you know, the earlier floods um, lose more one metre of rain in a day. That's the sort of stuff we can expect from now on. We can expect fire seasons with temperatures approaching 50 degrees Celsius, gale force winds, fire-generated storms, lightning starting fires. Um, this is the reality, unfortunately. We really must get ahead of it or try to or try to catch up. We can't get ahead of it because we're not even level with it now. So there's there's just a great deal to be done. But those recommendations are a bit of a treasure trove of measures that can be taken to make people safer. Greg, let's talk about climate for a moment. So La Nina, uh, it's been affecting us, affecting weather in Australia, of course, uh, this past season. Is La Nina still an influence? How likely is it do we know that there'll be another La Nina in the near future cycling around behind this weather? Well, look, what it basically does to La Nina is we have warmer ocean temperatures along the east coast. So there's more evaporation because the water's warmer. They turn into clouds and it rains. Um, we also have the Indian Ocean Dipole uh, where we have warm ocean temperatures that's gone negative, which means uh, to the northwest of Australia, we have warm ocean temperatures there. So that's also generating moisture, which comes across the continent. And both of those lead to a lot more rainfall. Um, we've had two La Ninas in a row, which is not unheard of, but usually there's just one. Some of the climate models are saying that we're likely to have a third kick in in spring this year. Now, that's only happened twice before. So it's quite unusual, but not unheard of. And if that's the case, well, there's just more to come. And of course, um, the east coast of, of Australia, New South Wales, we have these east coast lows that do form. And June, July is around the time that we expect them. But we've had lots of these over the last couple of years. And they're a compounding factor. They just make things worse and worse and worse. I'm Kylie Morris. This is Between the Lines on RN and you're listening to Greg Mullins, former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales. He's also a Climate Council member and founder of the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action. Greg, 
it's important to understand, I think, the links between flooding events and fire events. Often it feels like one doesn't affect the other, but you're very clear in drawing a connection between the way in which these events feed off each other and exacerbate effectively the, the overall problem. Can you describe that for us? Well, look, in simple terms, um, we're getting a lot more growth in the bush and particularly in arid, semi-arid areas and arid areas in the centre of Australia, where normally there wouldn't be much vegetation, it's going green because we've had these floods and storms and incredible rainfall over the last couple of years. So we're getting a lot of, lot of growth, which becomes fire fuel later on. And recently there was a newspaper story I was quoted in um, in my <laughs> getting out and about in the bush, I'm, I'm just astounded. Some of the areas that burnt in 2019-20, and this is just a guesstimate. There's no science behind this. This is just me observing the bush for the last half century. It looks like it's growing back twice as fast as you'd actually expect. And at some stage, all of that growth will dry off and it'll be available to burn. Uh, the centre of Australia, now the last time we had a big rain event that you could equate to what we're seeing now was 1973, 74. Um, there was massive floods. Um, this, the red centre of Australia turned, turned green, then it turned brown, then it turned black, 117 million hectares burnt. But they were grass fires that just burnt and burnt and burnt for months in remote areas, um, didn't do much in the way of damage, there weren't strong winds. But what I'm worried about is with the exacerbation of extreme weather by climate change, so stronger winds, lower humidities, high temperatures, the grass fires that we will experience after this dry, when we get our next drought and heat waves, um, they could be quite different to what we saw in 1974, 75, the summer, where we had the massive burning this new government has already made some commitments on, on climate change, as they promised in the run-up to the last election. They've also looked at bringing together two of the major agencies to manage recovery and manage emergencies under the Home Affairs portfolio. So this is a new agency now called the National Emergency Management Resilience and Recovery Agency, and that's going to open its doors on September 1st. And the government says that's a significant step forward and strengthens Australia's ability to prepare for, manage and recover from disasters. Do you see that in the same way? Yes, and you'd be aware that one of the first things that the Energy and Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen did when he was sworn in was reach out to me and meet with three representatives of emergency leaders for climate action together with Minister Murray Watt, Emergency Management Minister, and the Assistant Minister um, Jenny McAllister. So we went to Parliament House and then participated in Minister Bowen's first press conference. Now, amongst the things we discussed there, well, <laughs> what we've just discussed about what the rains will do, what comes next, you know, that there's probably going to be an east coast low because all the ingredients are there and we've just experienced that. There'll be fires down the track. But we talked about machinery of government changes and what they were considering and in our considered view, so almost 40 retired chiefs and deputy chiefs from fire and emergency services, every state and territory, it wasn't working. What the former government did with the National uh, Resilience and Recovery Agency wasn't working. They weren't getting money out. 
out of the gate. And it was under Prime Minister and Cabinet, while Emergency Management Australia, who had their finger on the pulse, were in home affairs. So they had to be under the same portfolio and they needed to be merged. It was just a duplication and wastage because you had two agencies with a lot of overlap. So it's a, it's a great first start and I'm very encouraged by what this government's doing. Great. Excellent. A positive note to end our chat uh, today, but thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. That's Greg Mullins, former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales. He's also a Climate Council member and the founder of the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action Group. Coming up, the continuing crisis in Sri Lanka where supplies of fuel, food and medicine are now dangerously low. Sri Lanka is gripped by its worst ever economic crisis that's prompted mass protests, demands for the president to resign and pleas for about $6 billion aid from the international community. The nation exhausted its foreign reserves in May and now has nothing to pay for the imports of the most basic goods. There's next to no petrol. Supplies of medicine and cooking oil are running low. Inflation, though, is running at around 70%. Schools are closed. Public buses are no longer running. Harini Amarasuria became an MP in 2020. She's from the National People's Power Party. Uh, She's also an academic specialising in sociology as well as a prominent human rights activist. Dr Amarasuria, thanks for joining us from Colombo. How would you describe the situation faced by ordinary people these days? How are the shortages being felt? The the biggest impact has been the fuel shortage, which has really disrupted life. So schools have closed. People are finding it difficult to get to work. So uh, most of the private sector have asked people to work from home. Even in the public sector, people are advised to work from home unless strictly necessary. Health services are functioning with a reduced uh, staff. So in every sense, sort of everyday life has become really difficult. And this has also affected employment for people, especially in the fishing industry, small enterprises, because it's not just the lack of petrol, but diesel and kerosene, which are essential for sort of transport services, for fishing, uh, for farming. All of these have been affected. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, Sri Lanka, Kylie, but we use tuk-tuks quite frequently for transport and tuk-tuks are dependent on petrol. So with uh, public transport also slowing down considerably, trains, there are fewer trains running, fewer buses, almost no uh, taxi services. So everyday life has become a real struggle And on top of that, um, inflation is actually 
54.6% right now. Oh, goodness. And uh, food inflation has hit 80%. So uh, the bulk of people's income is going towards food. Is there food to buy? If, if you have the funds, can you access the food that your family might need? Well, if you have the funds, you have access to basic stuff. Right. But because of the disruption to transport services right now, there are shortages of vegetables. And with the disruptions to the fishing industry, uh, there's reduced amount of fish available and costs have gone up steeply. So but there are also the basic things that are uh, no longer available. There is a fear that there might be a rice shortage because um, you may know that this uh, current government, the president in particular, as soon as he came into power, had this um, ban on chemical fertilizer almost overnight. He wanted to switch to organic farming. And as a result, this had a huge impact on the agriculture sector. So our food production has also been affected. This was affected anyway because of this agriculture policy. Then on top of that, with our resources dwindling and our inability to import essential foodstuff, plus the situation in Ukraine also affecting wheat imports. All of this has meant that there's, with the cost of prices going up, there are also shortages. Harini, when people come out to protest, we know that there are you know, protests scheduled over the weekend. There have been regular protests through the previous weeks. Yes. What is it that they are seeking? Are they purely there to express their anger and frustration at the situation? Or is there a plan? Is there a proposal from the people as to how to fix the current situation? Um, I would say there's a mix of all of this. For sure, there is a huge anger right now with the difficulties that people are facing. People are really frustrated. And they, and they just want this government out of the picture. I mean, they're really angry. So there's that. But these protests are not new. These protests have been going on for a while. It started with the farmers protesting uh, with the chemical fertilizer ban. Then there were teachers and other public sector people who started protesting. So the protests have been present for a while. So the, the nature of the protests and the demands are also quite dynamic and keep changing. So, uh, yes, there's anger, there's a demand for quick resolution for the immediate problems, but there's also now more and more sort of calls for accountability, calls for a different kind of political setup, a, polit a different political culture. There's call there are calls for electoral reforms, for a new constitution. So the, the, the demands are also expanding and growing. There's one sort of very, very basic demand that almost everybody's united on and that is that this government has to resign. So there are lots of calls, aren't there, for the president in particular to, to resign yeah. at this point? Yes, yes. I mean, that's become the tagline of, of the most recent protests. Uh, but I think the underlying meaning behind that is not just for the president to resign, but for this entire government to resign. Go, I mean, the president has become the target, yes, for sure. 
I guess that's the question, Haridi, in the sense that he, I mean, he says he's determined to serve out, I think he has another two years, doesn't he, in this term, despite all these calls for him to go. Mm. He's not only a former defence minister, but of course his brother was the Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa, who himself resigned. Yeah. Is there any way in which he keeps the presidency and the country moves on at this point, or is he too closely linked to the dysfunction and corruption of the previous government to uh, let the country move on and, and stay in office? No, it'll be impossible for him to stay on, and especially to stay on with the current level of power that he has within the constitution. I'm, I'm sure you're aware that one of the things he did when he came into power was to pass an amendment to the constitution, which reversed an amendment that was made by the previous government to reduce the powers of the presidency. He brought many of these powers back and more. So he, he is in a very strong position constitutionally, right? So there's no way that there can be any turnaround with him continuing in this position with this level of power. So this is why there has been also a lot of demand for even at this current moment with this parliament to bring in a constitutional amendment to reduce the powers of the president. This has also been a demand of the protests. But unfortunately, the current parliament is constituted heavily in his favor. He's the party that he represents holds a majority. So it's very difficult to push through any kind of legislation that will actually reduce the powers of the president. So this is why now there's a growing demand for an election, for a general election, for a parliamentary election, because the current parliament in no way meets the sort of the demand or has any legitimacy in the, with, with what's going on outside. And Harini, would you support those calls for elections? Absolutely, because we think that even the economic uh, crisis that we are facing you see, the, finally, the problem is that I think even to address those issues, we need to have a government that people have some trust in and have some faith in, that, the gov- that people will give them an, a chance for the government to perform, right? Uh, I think even internationally for us to get support, there has to be some signal that there is willingness to uh, address some of those kind of key political issues that have been brewing for a while. And at this, at this current moment, there is absolutely no trust that this government will be able to deliver on any of those political reforms that are necessary. So we really believe that a new government, an election at this point, will give the people an opportunity to make a fresh start, to make a fresh be- beginning to also set uh, uh, elect representatives who are more in line with the demands that people are making. I think without that, it's going to be really, really difficult to bring about the changes that are so necessary to even address the economic issues. I'm Kylie Morris. You're listening to Between the Lines on RN. And Harini Amarasuria is a Sri Lankan MP from the National People's Power Party. Uh, Harini, President Gotabaya posted on Twitter um, pictures of himself this week meeting Australia's High Commissioner. Uh, He said that their talks were centred on, to quote him, the synergy of naval ops and the issue of illegal immigrants. What role are neighbours like Australia playing currently? So there have been several countries that have come forward 
with help, uh, offering help, sort of humanitarian assistance. And, and Australia has certainly been one of those countries. Uh, India has been playing a major role in providing credit lines for obtaining uh, fuel and rice in particular. Uh, Australia for a long time has had strong links with Sri Lanka, especially on the uh, illegal immigrant issue. They've been working very closely with the military, with the Navy in particular, in in, uh, turning away people or boat people who've been setting off from Sri Lanka. And there's, there's quite a presence of, I mean, you can see in if you go to the north of um, Sri Lanka, you can see messages from the Australian government warning about consequences of entering the country illegally. We understand that that's a concern for Australia, but I, I mean, we find the president sort of choice of uh, how he kind of described the meeting with the Australian ambassador a little odd at this point in time. I mean, there are far more serious issues. We need to understand why there's such a push to leave this country. I mean, there's there are lines outside the passport office in Sri Lanka, people trying to leave the country. And that's because of the economic turmoil. That's because of the political turmoil. To turn that, make that a priority in terms of a naval operation, joint naval operation, I think hardly sort of features in, in people's minds as, as a priority right now. The priority has to be uh, fixing the problems that people are facing so that they wouldn't want to leave the country in the first place. So I find it very odd the way he termed it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was an unusual uh, choice perhaps for the president to make to focus on given the, the nature of the protests. But have countries like Australia been pragmatically short-sighted, do you think, potentially downplaying human rights and governance issues in favour of engaging with the previous regime? Was was there a failure by countries like Australia to prioritise the need for accountability? Well, I think as a whole, the international community needs to take a position with regard to the reasons for the crisis that we are facing. I mean, a lot of the time, even the the, the offers of humanitarian assistance or, or financial support tend not to look at the kind of causes of this crisis and the human rights violations, not just the human rights violations, the massive levels of corruption. I mean, I recently saw a program uh, run by an Australian uh, media company about a massive uh, corruption scandal involving uh, the Rajapaksa family on, on a deal to do with uh, medical supplies, I think. So, I mean, there's so much evidence of, of things of, of corruption, and, and that's been a real factor in, in why we've got to the point we, we are today, right? And, and it, it is disappointing that the international community is not using their influence to make the government pay attention to those things and to hold them accountable. And, you know, I mean, I, I, we would, I think, support of an international uh, an international approach that made it clear that they stand with the people of Sri Lanka rather than with the government of Sri Lanka. Harini, there's a large Sri Lankan diaspora in Australia, as yeah. there are, is in so many other nations, as a result of the decades-long conflict in Sri Lanka. Now, 
what role can the diaspora play at this stage? I know, I know the energy minister has been, been appealing to expats to send their money home quickly uh, through banks to finance new oil purchases. But, but can the diaspora also play a role in expectations for a new government or lobbying for a new kind of leadership in Sri Lanka? The Sri Lankan diaspora has always been very closely interested and involved in what goes on in Sri Lanka. One of the reasons why our foreign reserves have dipped so badly is because, uh, especially Sri Lankans who are remitting money back home, whether Sri Lankan citizens or those who are, who are employed abroad or others, uh, there's a drastic drop in remittances, partly due to, this, uh, to the government's monetary policy, but now more recently, because uh, the diaspora and Sri Lankans working abroad are refusing to send money, saying they don't want to support, they don't want to send money to a uh, to a government that is refusing to be held accountable for the corruption that they've, they've been responsible for. So, and I think that kind of pressure is useful, right? I mean, it's hard for us to say don't send the money because we also know how how important that money is for Sri Lanka right now. Uh, even as, as an opposition party, we cannot say don't send the money. But we understand why the diaspora would be reluctant to send money, why Sri Lankans living abroad would be reluctant to send the money, because there's, as I said, there's absolutely no faith that this government will utilize that money to actually help uh, the people of this country rather than uh, serve their own interests. So that is something that has that's been discussed recently. I mean, we are in touch with several groups, um, diaspora groups, who've told us very frankly that unless there is a change in government, they are not prepared to help. Harini, um, I think we need to send you good wishes <laughs> and uh, Thank you. and many hopes that that at least some of the changes that so many people are pushing for are actually achieved, hopefully in a peaceful way um, to Sri Lanka's betterment. That's Harini Amarasuria, a Sri Lankan MP. She's from the National People's Power Party, speaking to you from Colombo. So who can ride to the rescue? An international observer describes the uneasy relationship between Sri Lanka's leadership and the state's best placed to help in her time of need. Keenan is a senior consultant on Sri Lanka for the International Crisis Group. He's a PhD in political theory and has lived and worked in the country for extended periods for more than 20 years. Now, Alan, uh, you heard Harini there explaining that she agrees that a possible way forward now is for elections to be called. How likely do you think is that to happen? And what might the outcome be? I guess there's a danger it could add to the current instability. Yeah, my worry is not so much that it would add to the current instability, but more that it would um, may not produce any great um, change. Uh, uh, but I think it really is the way to go. 
it's clear that the current parliament has very little, if any, legitimacy, um, or you know that the population believes it's a, it's doing their work and is is working for the in interests of the country as a whole. So there needs to be a change. The problem, of course, is the classic one that the people in power, especially when they're they know they're very unpopular, are not so enthusiastic about um, an election which could boot them out. So the question is how to get to that point. Uh, there was some momentum, I think, in April for both constitutional change and possible subsequent elections. But that seems to have fizzled out. And even amidst rising anger and frustration at the extreme hardships that virtually everybody, uh, except for the very rarefied elite and some of the politicians, are, are suffering. Despite that, I don't yet see where the um, where the kind of critical mass uh, is going to be is going to emerge that can really force the the politicians to accept sort of to accept defeat and and go for an election. Um, the government just doesn't seem uh, to be interested in it. Uh, but I think it would certainly be the the best thing to do. And what might what might get us closer to that would be for the international community in various ways, both publicly and privately, to start pushing the government. Uh, in the direction to insist that an election is really the only way out, especially if the Sri Lankan government wants uh, the money from, via the IMF, which of course comes from taxpayers from all over the world, but including from very powerful governments. Um, those governments, I think, have a right to ask something for their money and to want to give it to a government that has some popular legitimacy. I think the other thing that elections could bring is if there was a government which did have greater public legitimacy, they would be better placed to persuade the people of Sri Lanka that the very difficult period ahead, even with IMF support, that it's worth going, that it's worth a road traveling down, even though it would be very difficult. So I think elections are the right way to go, but how to get there remains a big question. It's interesting that idea that you have of you know tying the lobbying for for the election or indeed the Sri Lankan government calling an election to the provision of funds. I, I know that um, the current prime minister or the new prime minister Ranil Wickremesinghe has said that Colombo needs I think five billion dollars over the next six months just to keep pace with basic living standards. So that's money to buy fuel, to import food, to get cooking gas and for fertilisers. You mentioned the IMF there. Is that the obvious first call for the Sri Lankan government in its bid to find money? Well, it's an, it's an absolutely essential port of call. I mean, I know there's lots of uh, legitimate criticism of the IMF uh, and some of their policies over the years. There's a lot of skepticism in Sri Lanka about whether they really have the interests of the Sri Lankan people at heart or or the interests of global capital. But regardless of, of that, they're an absolute necessity. There's no way to restart in any sustainable way this, the Sri Lankan economy without an IMF bailout. Unfortunately, that bailout is still a long way away, even though there have been um, a series of negotiations, most recently, I believe, last week in, in Colombo. There's still a ways from getting what's called a, um, uh, now I'm forgetting what it's called, uh, a, um, anyway, the, the, the initial level of, um, of support, there's still a wave, wave from getting. But even when that agreement in principle is agreed, 
they still, the IMF will not actually disperse funds until um, the creditors, all the international creditors, have agreed to restructure the debt. That is to say, basically, to accept less on the dollar uh, for the of the bonds that they have that they have bought. So until that complicated process of negotiating with multiple stakeholders, multiple bondholders, is is finalized, and um, the IMF uh, believes that the debt that Sri Lanka has is actually payable or sustainable in IMF terms. Only then will there be money uh, actually dispersed. So that is at least five, six months away. So the big question is how can Sri Lanka stumble along without complete collapse um, in that interim period? And that's very, it's very hard to see where that money is going to come from. A lot of already India has, has offered a lot of, um, I think it's approaching $4 billion now in um, various credit lines and currency swaps and so forth. There's been a bit of other money here or there. There's been much needed humanitarian assistance, which I think is absolutely essential. Um, not Nothing in the league of, of five billion, but I think uh, one minimum requirement, and I think some countries are beginning to, to step up here, is, is the money for, for um, the mo- you know, basic food items and um, fertilizer, sorry, and, um, and medicines and what is needed just to keep people from starving or dying in the hospital unnecessarily. So I think that's an absolute essential. But I really have to say I don't really know where they're going to get the five billion for the next for the interim period before the IMF um, money kicks in and before the the creditors agree to a haircut, as it's called in the business, which will then mean that the debt burden is less in the future and therefore less to pay off every month. I guess given Sri Lanka's fairly terrible um, track record in honouring debt payments uh, until this point, and it's part of the reason for the economic chaos that exists currently, it must be hard to have confidence that if you dig deep to help Sri Lanka, that that, ne- that funding is necessarily going to be paid off. Yeah, well, I think actually they've been good at um, paying off the debt. They've, they've managed their debt. This the the effective um, default that they announced in April was the first ever in Sri Lanka's history. So they've been able to kind of, um, you know, stumble along even even during the war years with uh, a various assistance, um, various forms of loans, and then more recently the, the turn to the sovereign bond market. But the problem is, that as they've done that, the, the debt has grown bigger. And then it was this combination of factors the um, the pandemic, uh, COVID, which wiped out tourism and therefore wiped out something like six billion dollars in in yearly um, hard currency that came from from tourism, but also um, reduced exports, reduced ref- remittances from Sri Lankan workers overseas, which was um, generally speaking over the years almost as much or as much as as tourism. Uh, and then, of course, there was the boneheaded decision of the of the president when he first, within the first few months of him coming to power, in early 2020, when he cut taxes by something like reducing government revenue by something like 25 percent, which is you know just a, a crazy thing to do. Um, the idea was that it would you know that business would boom and there would be lots of lots more revenue coming in, but that did not happen. So, and then, of course, more, more recently, there's been the war in Ukraine, which has jacked up oil prices and food prices and reduced um, supplies. So this combination of events and forces uh, really hit 
a country that was always kind of just on the edge, but was refusing to believe it was just on the edge because they were sailing along, living on debt, not realizing, or at least the government, particularly the Rajapaksa family, which has ruled for most of the most of the last 15, 17 years, um, kind of was living in this fantasy land, even though a lot of economists and some opposition politicians were warning of what was coming. But I think particularly the, that particular set of politicians and the larger public was just um, used to living beyond their means and didn't believe anything was going to change that. But this series of, of um, sort of the perfect storm of economic factors and bad decision-making um, by the government really has, has pushed them over the edge. And now they're just in free fall. And it's, it's really difficult to see how they're going to get out of free fall anytime soon. Alan, to what extent did the Rajapaksas, have the Rajapaksas relied for their power on other states not really pushing them to act accountably and, and indeed turning a blind eye to some fairly shocking human rights abuses over the years, um, political murders, disappearances, massacres? Yeah, well, there has been some, you know, some some Western governments, the United States, the European Union, um, uh, occasionally some other governments have raised the concerns about the terrible abuses, human rights abuses and war crimes uh, in the final years of the war and some of the sort of the political oppression, including murders and abductions and um, beatings of journalists that accompanied those final years of the war um, up to 2009 and the and the few years, next few years, um, as the Rajapaksas consolidated their power. Those issues get raised. They get raised at the UN Human Rights Council. There have been various tough resolutions. There have been statements many times made. There have been very limited targeted sanctions against some senior military um, people. But basically, that's been one track. And the other track uh, that that most governments have have pursued is it is a desire to sort of retain decent relationship with the Rajapaksas and with the Sri Lankan government, largely I think, or to a large extent because of the growing influence of China over the years, uh, over the last decade or so. So a lot of Western governments are afraid that if they or have been afraid that if they push the Rajapaksas too hard, it would only push them further into the hands of the Chinese. Um, so they've been very reluctant to, um, to to press them, not just on these war crimes issues, but on the larger sort of governance style of the Rajapaksas, which is authoritarian, concentrating power in the family and in the president, which is the current president's Gotabi Rajapaksa, the president uh, before him. With a, there was a brief interregnum with Maitripala Sirisena, but before him was his big brother Mahinda Rajapaksa. So. Um, the Rajapaksa family has dominated Sri Lankan politics since 2005, and they've dominated it in a, in a very violent, thuggish, intimidatory way, but also by um, by the use of corruption, by buying people off, by controlling a lot of the private media, by intimidating people into silence. And there's um, there's not been a lot of pushback on that. There's uh, there's again there have been statements occasionally decrying this or suggesting other ways of of governing might be wiser. But I don't think there was um, a clear sense that this style of governance was not only wrong in a moral sense and you know objectionable in terms of democratic liberal principles, but was also 
not a good way to run a country and was actually going to directly affect economic um, decision making. And I think that's what we've seen is there's a direct link between um, the political failures and the political uh, repression, corruption, authoritarianism, concentration of power in the family and in the president. And on the one hand, and the economic decisions, the bad economic decisions, the willful kind of uh, negligence in how the Sri Lankan, gov- Sri Lankan government managed the economy, the fact that the those in power, the president and those close to him, just refused to listen to independent economic advice um, that was telling them their decisions were wrong, that they had to go to the IMF. They should have gone to the IMF certainly a year, if not two years ago. So all of the all of those decisions were facilitated by an authoritarian, a repressive form of governance that made it hard for people to speak out, that that cut people out of decision making, that that made it dangerous for people to challenge the government. So I think there wasn't enough attention to those factors. I think from from uh, foreign governments with influence, and now it's many of those same governments to whom the Sri Lankan government is coming cap in hand and saying, "Please bail us out." So I think. It's really important that Western governments and India and Japan, who have, who have played major roles in sustaining the Sri Lankan economy both now and in the past, all say to the, to the government, both independently and through the IMF, that if they want the kind of bailout and debt restructuring that is necessary to sustain the economy, to get it back on track eventually, they really have to have, to have a, agree to a different style of, of, of running the government. They need a constitutional amendment that... Um, puts limits on the president's powers or eliminates the executive presidency entirely, which would be preferable. It gives power to the parliament that establishes truly independent oversight commissions uh, and authorities over, over corruption, over you know, national auditing, over how, how decisions are made. Um, and only then, I think, will there be some, um, can one say with confidence that the uh, international funding to rescue the economy will actually be put to good use and will be sustainable. Alan, just finally, um, with regards to Australia's role in all of this, Australia's promised uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Penny Wong's promised $50 million in aid to Sri Lanka. She says to meet urgent food and healthcare needs, warning that there are deeper consequences for the region if this crisis continues. But we've also heard about you know, the signs in the north of the country warning anyone against trying to travel to Australia. Um, Sri Lanka's president has described a meeting with Australia's High Commissioner uh, talking about where they talked about naval operations and illegal immigration. Is that a useful role for Australia to play at this stage? Well, I can understand for their, you know, the domestic interests of um, of Australian politicians why that's the game they've been playing. But I think what we've seen is the problem with the overemphasis on keeping people from getting on boats is that it's required working with the same forces which have been at the heart of Sri Lanka's collapsing economy and collapsing democratic system, which is the Rajapaksa family and the military, uh, which, I mean, the military has, you know, deep, deep questions to answer about its role in, towards the end of the war and the abuses um, that, that certainly many parts of, of the military were involved with. Um, but in order to keep the boat people away, the Australian government and other governments have had to work with those very forces and have empowered them, have legitimated them, have have, rest- have refrained from being as tough, criticizing them. Um, so I think uh, what we're seeing is what I was saying before, is there's a direct line between the sort of 
anti-democratic, um, corrupt, thuggish, authoritarian, militarized form of governance that the Rajapaks has favored, and the economic problems, which now everybody is, you know, so urgently trying to help solve, and the humanitarian crisis that has, that has sort of spilled out of the economic crisis. So I think it's absolutely necessary for the Australian government, for all governments, to to contribute as much as they can for urgent food needs, urgent medical needs, and other related um, humanitarian needs. But in addition to that, they should be really pressing for these deeper uh, political changes, constitutional changes, elections, as we were saying in the beginning of this interview, and more generally realize that if you deal with guys who don't follow the rules, who think only of themselves, who line their, their pockets, who buy people off, who murder their political opponents, it's the, you know, it's not going to end good. It's not going to end well. Even if it keeps boat people out now, it's going to produce a problem later on where there's even more boat people coming your way. So I think there's some real lessons to learn, not just for the Australian government, but for a lot of governments. Um, that, um, you know, when you when you deal with and empower the devil, um, the you know, there's other things that come back, even if you might win something in the short term. There's longer longer term consequences that can come back to to bite you, but, but more importantly, of course, to bite the Sri Lankan people. Alan Keenan, thanks for joining us on Between the Lines. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Alan Keenan, who's the International Crisis Group's Senior Consultant on Sri Lanka. And that's the show. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer. Thanks for your company. Join me again next week for more from Between the Lines here on ABC RN. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.